Hello and welcome to the Translation Company Talk, a weekly podcast show focusing on translation services and the language industry. The Translation Company Talk covers topics of interest for professionals engaged in the business of translation, localization, transcription, interpreting, and language technology. The Translation Company Talk is sponsored by YYZ Translations. Your host is Sultan Ghaznawi with today's episode. Welcome to the Translation Company Talk Podcast. I am Sultan Ghaznawi and today we will be discussing an important topic that every LSE owner has to think about at some point. I'm talking about mergers and acquisitions or uh, M&A as it is abbreviated in the business circles. We will cover issues and topics that range from who is the right candidate to sell to uh, what are the nitty-gritty and fine details that you should be familiar with. I am here today with Steve Chu, who will speak on this subject. Let me do a quick introduction of Steve. I've known him for a few years now. Steve is in the business of helping companies grow and get to the next level. He has more than 20 years of diversified management experience in general management, sales, marketing, and operations. After spending more than a decade in the financial communications industry, managing Asia operations, use operations, technology, product development, and marketing, Steve founded Treehouse Strategy with the purpose of using big data and business analytics to drive business growth. Through Treehouse Strategy, Steve and his associates, as well as partners, have helped their clients develop their sales and marketing strategies, develop new customers, expand into new markets, streamline operations, as well as implement business and technology solutions. Steve is also the founder and executive director of the Globalization Organization of Asia Pacific, uh, which abbreviates to GOAP. Um, GOAP is a global industry and trade association that focuses on globalization efforts of companies and localization industries in Asia, Oceania, and countries in the entire Asia Pacific region. This organization is seeking to promote and foster development of globalization and localization technologies in Asia. Oceania and the Asia Pacific region. Steve received his uh, Bachelor of Arts from Columbia University and his Master of Arts and Communication from Iowa State University. So with that, welcome to our show, Steve. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much for that wonderful introduction, Sultan. I'm glad you're here and I've been meaning to talk to you for a long time because uh, you're an industry insider and you know a lot more about uh, business areas that normally don't get discussed a lot. So I'm talking about mergers and acquisitions. And um, I would like to learn about how you got into this. How, how did you get involved? Well, by accident, like a lot of people. So I was in the software IT and management consulting space. And right after the dot-com bubble bust, bursted in early 2000, 2001, right. I had, was fortunate that I had several offers Many of, many of them were from software companies, and one was from a translation company. And I decided at the time to run away as, as far away from the software industry as I can, so I chose the translation company. That's actually how I got my start. And uh, that's, that's interesting. And, and this happened right during the dot-com bubble era, I mean? That's correct, yes. Uh, so I was... In a way, life has come full circle, right? Because our industry, the translation industry, is very much technology-driven as anything else. So, in, invariably, in every industry, including ours, 
uh, software still plays a very significant role, and I'm sort of a software geek at heart. So, as much as I try to run away from it, uh, here I am. So, tell me about what were the people, people's impression, or what did people say when you told them that you're joining the language industry, the translation industry? Well, when I tell people I work in the language industry, I usually have to qualify and explain that by saying it's a translation industry, right? right? And then people ask, so do you translate from English to Chinese? And then I would have to explain, well, a lot of our clients are translation companies and Treehouse Strategy as a company, we don't do any translation. So that's usually what I have to go through to explain it to people. Yeah, I know. It's, 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 it's still hard. People... Um, when, when you talk to them about translation, people automatically assume you're you're looking at converting one language into another, and and they automatically assume that you're dealing with something like uh, Google translation, which obviously is a matter of education, client education, and that's changing. So it, it, let me uh, ask you this: uh, When did you decide to start um, advising language services companies or translation companies on the areas of, of growth and uh, profitability? Because you you your scope of work is more or less on expanding business. That that's right. So I personally have been in the language industry uh, since the early two thousands, and you know for the first ten years of that time span, I was working on the side of the language companies in operations and sales and marketing. Uh, essentially, I was in every imaginable role uh, that you could think of in the language industry, right? I oversaw technology, I oversaw DTP, vendor management, sales and operations, as I mentioned. And around 2010 is when I founded Treehouse. Uh, so we had been a going concern uh, as a management consulting company specializing in the language industry for about a decade. So when you started advising companies and getting involved in their business development and, and uh, I guess, defining a vision and a strategy for them, tell me what, what goes on into that. What, what is it? So uh, for a language translation leader, um, uh, an owner of a company, what does that mean? Well, a lot of companies are trying to figure out how to get to the next level, right? How to grow or... What we have also seen is that a lot of the companies are seeing a plateau in terms of their company growth, their revenue growth. And that's kind of where we come in. We come in and help companies devise a strategy or a plan to help them get unstuck, so to speak. And you know, we also come across company owners who have a vague idea that they want to do something different. They, they understand the need or the urgency to do something differently but they don't necessarily know what it is or how to go about it. And so that's another role that we could play in coming in and work with these company owners and really trying to figure out what to do. Okay, so on, to continue on that, um, a lot of um, company owners that I've spoken with, um, they complain that um, you know the demographics are changing. Most of their buyers are now millennials. The products are changing. The services that they were offering are either not relevant or they are changing. And they're kind of lost on where to go from there. Is that something that uh, you would advise on to these people? Absolutely, absolutely. I think the they're they're absolutely right. Right. The not only are the buyer demographics are changing. I, I think just in general, that's that's a trend in every industry in in every era. So those companies that stand still or are slow to adapt or adopt to new technologies, to new business trends, will risk getting left behind. And uh, uh, that's in, uh, uh, inevitable. 
So where we would come in is to help co- these company owners either think of new products, new services, uh, or even how to better re- reach existing customers that they've been do- do- uh, doing business with. Well, you know, they say that it's very hard to run a company by yourself. And, and most people, especially within the translation industry, don't know that there is help available in order to, um, to figure out your direction or your path going forward. But at the end of the day, it comes down to your forte your potential of what you can offer and sell. And um, I guess with a little bit of um, creativity and a little outside help, you can define your, um, your, your offer or your, your service as a package and, and make it more uh, relevant to today's buyer. Absolutely. I mean, I think growing a company requires many skills, right? We all know that. It requires marketing skills, sales skills, people skills, communications, innovation. Right product development and few people, few of us have all of those skills in one. And I think the process of getting all these things down in a cogent plan can be very, very overwhelming. And that's where we come in uh, is to come in and help advise uh, owners in pulling all of these things together, all the very various resources into a cogent and coherent plan. Let's take a step back and let me ask you something that uh, is probably a little personal to you and, and if you can reflect on that. Uh, why was that something you chose to do? I mean, to advise businesses on growth, profitability, ex- expansion, and so forth, as opposed to the natural path of starting your own language services company or something along those lines. Sure, I'm glad you raised that question because I get I do get asked that quite a lot. When I first started Treehouse Strategy. I always knew that I wanted to start my own company, right? The question is, well, what company do I really want to start and what benefit it would add to the business community and sort of just to the larger commu- communities that we serve. And I just feel that, you know, the, the sort of the funny answer to that is that I just don't feel that the world needs another translation company from, from Steve. And, and as I had been in this industry for, for a decade, up until that point, I feel that the language really, language industry really could benefit from the type of business services and the strategy services that we offer. And since that time, we found that our value proposition really resonates with the business owner community uh, in this industry. Well, you know, uh, there is uh, a known fact, apparently during gold rush days, um, the people who were digging for gold were obviously either they would get lucky or not, but the people who actually got lucky and made money were the ones who were selling tools uh, that could be used for digging for gold, I guess. I mean, Levi's company was selling jeans back then. So our industry, given its size and how big it is, I think there is quite a few very good players out there. But if you were to help those players get to their objectives, I think that's a big opportunity. Exactly, exactly. I mean, when we first started 10 years ago as a consulting company, practically no one else was doing what, we're, what we were doing at the time. And even now, as you look around in the language industry, a management consulting company specializing in this industry is still relatively rare. Yeah, I haven't so come I across many, actually. Uh, uh, I have not seen many companies that advise LSEs on, on this area. I mean, there, there are some that specialize in, in research. You take the words right out of my mouth, Sultan. And, and you're right. There are a number of market research companies 
And sometimes we get asked this question, right? How are you different from these market research companies? So I think there's sometimes a bit of confusion amongst uh, the business owners and the language company owners that we speak to. These market research companies, as you mentioned, some of them do offer consulting, but our fundamental focus and approach are really, really different. All right. So uh, shifting gears a little bit, Steve, let me ask you about your current view of the language services company landscape. What does it look like now? Is it an area that um, is exciting or is uh, do you see potential bumps on the road? Uh, what's your general view? Well, a little bit of both. The, I think the language industry continues to be a growth industry and the industry as we know is very, very fragmented. And Absolutely. There are definitely bumps in the road. Uh, like every other industry and you know, I think the elephant in the room is COVID, right? Yes We can't really get into this conversation without talking about how COVID affects us at some point Right So the bumps in the road definitely include the what the the both the public health and as well as the economic challenges that this pandemic poses to our industry so undoubtedly there will be bumps in the road, but I also see a lot of growth potential and one thing that doesn't get talked about quite a bit is the advent of the 5G internet uh, standard. Yes. And I believe 5G will, will spur a new round of product innovations. It will finally enable the so-called internet of everything really possible with the high-speed 5G connection. Right. And with the high-speed 5G connection, that means more devices will be connected and more bandwidth consuming content such as video will be possible. And what that means is that more interfaces will need to be localized and more content will need to be translated. So I think 5G will potentially bring about, will, will potentially spur further growth for the demand for language services. That's interesting you say, Steve, because with 5G, I mean, it's it's a technology that um, obviously is, is a telecom uh, uh, component, but you're, you're thinking that its effects will also be on LSEs. There will be more content to process. Yes, I do. I think we are already seeing that, right? With the, uh, the advent of things such as the smart speakers, Right. And the Alexas and the you know the Google speakers of the world, there's already a demand for the transcription and the translation of voice. And as these devices require uh, audio and voice commands. So that alone has spurred demand for uh, audio translation uh, that didn't exist two or three years ago. And we certainly see that trend continuing, right? In fact, we know a few language companies that specifically work for these smart speaker providers. Interesting. Yes, it's it's an area of growth for sure. And uh, I think with 5G and as you said, with artificial intelligence uh, applications such as uh, the smart home uh, uh, products, uh, the potential is there. Uh, most of the applications and how it will translate into work for language companies it's it's still yet to be um cannot visualize it yet so these are things that will materialize down the road but uh, opportunities will be there yes I, I totally agree and the 
it's the sort of the first movers, right? That those companies that have the vision and the the know-how who can get into the game will have a distinct advantage as the technology and 5G plays out in the next couple of years. That's that's a very exciting area. And uh, would, you alluded about COVID earlier, that that's, that's an unknown. It's uh, probably going to be some bumps on the road for some of the, or at least some of the LSEs. Uh, since you see the language translation companies or LSEs or language services companies from an inside uh, lens, do you see that COVID will drastically affect the traditional LSE model beyond uh, remote work? or work from home changes? Will there be additional implications for them? I do. I have to admit that back in January and February, uh, I was announced that many of us would think that this COVID thing will come to pass, right? Right. And here we are in July. And I've now come to believe that COVID is really a once in a generation, if not a once in a lifetime event. And I compare it to kind of a forest fire. A forest fire is a naturally occurring event that brings balance. It, it, it really returns nutrients to the earth. Right. And COVID as a major lifetime event uh, in our lifetime is bringing about that balance. And meaning that it's going to burn down those companies that do not have the wherewithal to survive this pandemic. And so what you mentioned home, home uh, working from home, on that example alone, I think that COVID will drive even greater outsourcing, not just people, employees working from home, and perhaps even offshore outsourcing. This is something that's already a trend, and even before COVID, but COVID is accelerating that trend. And another example is is also in some ways an obvious one, but there are also some not so obvious implications, which is the mm-hmm. adoption of technology, right? When working right. from home, the, all the companies have to adopt some sort of remote and collaboration technologies. And we know that language companies are already generally already used to that, to that mode of working with freelancers, for example, on a remote basis. Right, right. So the, the, again, the, the COVID is going to drive further adoption of technologies in general. Um, it's proving to be disruptive because and we see this amongst our colleagues who do interpretation, for example, right? Especially those that do online, uh, on-site events. Right. Those companies are hit really, really hard. So we will see COVID uh, forcing these companies to adopt remote interpretation technologies and, and platforms. Right. So on now in your business, how do you advise your uh, LSE clients to uh, mitigate the risks or how to adapt um, w- with this new phenomena. Obviously, it's, as you said, it, it's a historic change in, in, in our basically a- every area of our life. Well, as a, I'll make a general comment first. Sure. And, you know, we, we generally work with companies by first starting a, a workshop, which can be done virtually online, right? Before COVID, uh, that's something that we have either done those types of workshops either online or sometimes on site. And so that's really largely driven by company owners' preferences. And 
So during the these sort of workshops, we brainstorm, we ask a lot of questions about the company's directions, what their potential, their future vi- future vision, right, and essentially do a SWOT analysis. We also review their c- company's documents and del- deliverables, such as their sales plan, their marketing plan, any proposals, uh, responses to RPs, etc. So we go through a thorough assessment process that is part of our uh, methodology. And with respect to COVID, we are currently working with a number of com- companies right now and really help them transition out of their existing uh, business model and help them innovate. And by innovation, we don't, we're not necessarily talking about a 180-degree turn, right? Business innovation can come in in small, subtle ways, right. essentially helping them figure out how they can get out of the, the way that they've always been doing things for the last 5, 10, 15 years and try something different. So uh, to continue on that, uh, what kind of an LSE would benefit from your services or an ad- outside uh, advisor like yourself? Several types of profiles, I would say. There are companies that are looking to take their game to the next level. They, are, they may already be successful, but they're looking to grow, to expand, and they want to reach that next level. And so that's the type of uh, profile of companies that we work with. The second type of companies that we work with may be companies that are kind of stuck at where they are. Their revenue has plateaued, as I mentioned earlier, and they don't know how to get unstuck. And we also work with uh, smaller companies as well. And I think small companies sometimes may feel hesitant in reaching out to us, but I think that small companies are really, especially the ones that can really, really benefit from working with an outside outside advisor such as Treehouse Strategy. So to continue uh, again on the same subject, I know that a lot of language service company leaders or owners used to be freelance translators at some point and they transitioned to at some point forming a company and then taking more work and outsourcing it. Some of them are not very much business savvy or they don't have the right acumen to scale and grow their businesses. Would someone like that benefit from outside professional advice in in the areas of management? And at what cost does that advice come? Well, as we alluded to earlier, growing a company does require many skills. Right. And we know that a lot of the language company owners begin their career as translators. And there's also a common misperception that we come across quite a bit which is to grow a company, to grow sales, the first step you would take is to hire a salesperson. And it may seem counterintuitive, but that's not necessarily the case, nor is that something we necessarily advise that language company owners undertake as a first step to grow their business. And so I think an area where we, we come in and help is try to get the company's fundamental stamp. Because for a salesperson to be successful, you also have to have the marketing machine that supports sales activities in place. Lead generation and everything. Exactly. Lead generation activities, digital marketing, you have to have those things in place. And 
to measure your activity successfully, you need certain number of metrics and key performance indicators, for example, and which means that you have to have your measurement mechanisms in place, including financials. And a lot of companies struggle with their financial reporting, so that's another area to get sort of get their fundamentals down. Now, with cost, um, I would say it's very highly dependent. Management consulting company, by definition, is about problem solving, right? It depends on what kind of business problems that we're being asked to solve. I will say this though: that many small companies and may think that they cannot afford to hire a management consulting company. I would really encourage them to reach out and talk to us because we have worked with companies of all sizes and all budgets, and we're able to create working arrangements that fit most budgets. Okay, and and I know that you mentioned earlier about how you start this process, but what does this uh, advising looks like uh, to uh, because right now for, for everyone it's kind of a black box, you know, uh, uh, they don't know what goes on in this. What value are they getting? So, in addition to the workshop and the review of these uh, deliverables, and after that, we create a set of plans and recommendations on how to best execute these uh, growth plans. And the most effective way to get engaged, and I think companies that see most results, are not so much for us to play just an advisory role, but also participatory. Um, we are a little bit different from most management consulting companies in the sense that a lot of the management consulting companies are quite happy to hand their clients a document on their recommendations and sort of wash their hands clean, leaving the companies to figure out how to implement that strategy. Right. And our view is that a lot of these strategies actually, quite frankly, fail, and not because the strategies are not intrinsically good, but because the implementation uh, does not was was far from perfect, right? It was sort of the flaw in the execution and the implementation, and that's really where I think the some, sometimes the the clients be, become a little bit bitter and uh, and a little bit disillusioned about the value of an outside advisor or an outside management consulting company coming in. So we strongly believe that a good strategy coupled with excellent implementation is more important than a great strategy but average execution. Between those two, implementation and execution always win. And we generally like to stay on to help clients and guide them through the implementation. And that's what I mean by taking a participatory role as opposed to strictly an on an advisory basis. So before we start talking about mergers and acquisitions, I wanted to ask you, um, for company owners, in order to uh, be ready to even think about M&As, they need to first make sure that their house is in order. They need to make sure that their companies have the right uh, strategy, uh, at least something that they can explain to a potential buyer. Uh, is that something you also get involved in and, and help them guide through that process? Yes. The M&A process is, doesn't just start when you are 
looking to find a buy buyer, right? right? And it really starts much earlier in the process. How much earlier? I would say the longer the time span you have, the better positioned you will be. And when we come in to work with a potential seller, uh, that's actually the first question we ask: is there is there time horizon? And we want to understand when they expect to exit. Is it three months, uh, which would be basically immediate, or are they talking about one to three years, or is that something even longer term? And that really help inform the the time frame that we know we have to work with. And so, depending on that time frame, there are different approaches. So, one thing that we know, just as as an example, I may be jumping ahead here, that is that. Buyers are always looking for diversification of their risks, right? So they want to see a diversification of the client base and revenue base. Right. That is not something you can readily address within one or two months. It really takes much longer to try to diversify your client base. So that's why we always advise potential sellers to think about these things as early in the timeline as possible,、um, and. With that in mind, the time frame in mind, we devise、uh, an exit plan, and to help companies get their house in order, get their books in order, and get them ready for an eventual sale. So、uh, now that we've started talking about、uh, mergers and acquisitions, let's talk about、um, what is going on in that area of our industry.、Um, in terms of M and As, we've noticed that there has been quite a bit of consolidation. Among larger players, but、uh, let me hear you.、Uh, what is going on among smaller and mid-sized LSCs?、Uh, is that、uh, is there more activity, less activity? Do you foresee things changing in the next twelve to twenty-four months?、Uh, give us a general perspective. I think M and A is still very much on the minds of small and mid-sized company owners, and M and A remains a viable strategy to grow for companies of all sizes. And the comment that you made about consolidation is right on. And the industry has been on this consolidating path for a number of years now. The challenge is that we there are only so many larger players left to get consolidated, right? Right. And we we we've seen a number of、uh, high-profile transactions in our space with these larger companies. And the reality is that. We have a handful of companies that have revenues north of 100 million, and in the next tier of, let's say, from 50 to 100 million, those sort of that tier, there are only so many players left in that in that tier, and then the then we go into a very very steep cliff, so to speak, and then what is left is a lot of small to mid-sized、uh, LSPs with either one or two million, perhaps. Four or five million dollars in revenue, and many companies are still in that in that tier, right? So I think the in the next twelve to twenty four months,、uh, M and A still very much remains viable. We do see the current pandemic playing a role in that process, and、uh, some companies are putting their、um, their exit plan on hold, and that's something I'm sure that we, we will talk a little bit more in depth in in, in a little bit. Absolutely. So while we are on that topic, let me ask you something, Steve, about、uh, the role of outside 
companies trying to outside industry companies trying to acquire uh, some of the players inside noticed that with uh, several larger players actually in the past year or a couple of years is is that something on the rise does it mean that the profile of our industry is getting noticed outside the localization industry because traditionally it's just been one larger company acquiring a smaller company and so on uh, within the industry but now we've seen that people from outside are showing interest yes and we definitely seeing that trend as well. In the last uh, couple of years, we, we as a management consulting company have actually been approached by a few private equity companies looking to partner with us because they're seeking uh, targets to invest in. And the challenge, I think, of course, we all know this intuitively, is that private, private equity companies are looking for fairly bigger deals right, to right. invest in. And in the past, I think the, our industry has not gotten their attention because, in large part, because a lot of the companies have not grown to the size that, that would be attractive to these private equity companies. And in the past decade, we have seen a few companies that are large enough to attract the attention of private equity companies. The issue now is, again, there are only so many of those companies left yeah. of that size. And so a few of the private equity companies that we've talked to became disappointed when they realized there aren't that many potential targets that they could work with to place their equity in. And where I think there will be a potential still going forward with these outside investors coming in would be a possible roll-up. Uh, that is for a private equity companies to buy a number of smaller ones and roll them up to a larger to a larger entity and then exit by selling a basically a bundle of smaller companies that are rolled up into a larger entity to another player. So that could be the next trend. Okay, so that's something that you see as, as a put happening? Yes, we, we do. Okay. In fact, we are actually working on a potential deal um, to roll up small companies. Something I didn't know actually. So on, on that topic again, uh, a lot of language services company owners uh, are contemplating an exit uh, probably and need a reason to to do that some motivation everyone's situation is obviously different what motivates people to sell or buy for example if someone wants to sell their their company mid-sized company so that it can be consolidated with a number of other companies you were just talking about that what what motivates them uh, what is generally the reason for someone to to say okay i'm ready to leave i know that many company owners, I should say many, perhaps some language company owners that we have come across, for them, this is a lifestyle business. And for a lifestyle business, I think the obvious reason for an exit is a change in lifestyle, meaning, for example, retirement. And or even some may just want to get out and do something different. And so for the lifestyle companies, the exit is timed and the mentality is geared towards a particular mode for lifestyle change, right? They want more time, meaning do something different in retirement, uh, cashing out, and use the, 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 the proceeds to fund the, their next phase of activities. And that, that's actually tied to their expectations for what their company is worth, right? The cashing out component. Um, for, for others, buying a company, uh, there are many motivations, and I think that 
buy a company because it's glamorous is the wrong reason to get into the game, right? To say that, oh, I bought XYZ company to get into the MA game just for, because it, it looks glamorous. Right. That's, that's not the right, the right reason to be in it. But for buyers the, who are looking to enter a new market, and we worked with these strategic buyers from international players looking to enter the U.S., and they use acquisition as a, as a way in. That's a viable strategy. We've also seen, for example, West Coast companies in the U.S. that want to have an East Coast footprint. Right. So they're, using, they're turning to acquisition as the quickest way to set up shop. And not just to have an office and people, but also have a client base. And, and obviously buying revenue, buying clients uh, for the buyers are all motivations for getting into the M&A space on the buyer side. And finally, buying technology. Uh, that's relatively rare because most language companies do not have proprietary uh, technology. But that's certainly, for those that do, that would be attractive to buyers as well. Okay, so about technology, um, I know that it's become a little bit trendy nowadays to, to associate yourself with uh, the trendy technology that's out there, whether it's uh, blockchain or artificial intelligence or even within our industry, uh, machine learning or uh, machine translation and so forth. Which one of those is right now something that uh, buyers are interested in? Is that something that they're looking at? Is that a selling factor? Oh, always, always. The, the reality remains that it's very difficult for a one service company to set itself apart from another company, right? We're talking about differentiation here. Right. And it's much more difficult to differentiate yourselves for service companies in general. And let's face it, most of us as service companies are out there talking about our quality, talking about our service. And some offer position ourselves as affordable, um, sort of competing a little bit on price, right? Even though it may not be overt. But the technology is a potential, a huge potential point of differentiation. And there's also that glamorous factor too, right? The technology, new technology is that new shining object. And as humans, we, it's a sort of a human tendency to chase after the, the latest, the newest shining object on the street. Right. So there is that factor as well. The, and technology also has the potential to increase efficiency. Um, some of it is speculative, of course, but there's a lot, a lot of value in adopting or developing new technologies. Absolutely. So um, shifting gears a little bit, uh, let me ask you about... Uh... Uh, COVID-19, again, this is the flavor of the day when it comes to the news topics. So COVID-19, how has this affected the M&A activity? Uh, you mentioned earlier that some people may have put their plans on hold, but do you see that changing over time uh, as we are adapting more to this new norm? It's definitely shifting. And yes, companies in general are putting big initiatives on hold, including M&A. Right, there's a hiring freeze, for example, for most companies. Many major capital improvement projects are postponed and delayed. For sellers in the M&A space, they're seeing their revenue take a hit, and with that, their valuation. So they're delaying their potential exit with the hope that they can write it out, and so that their revenue may come back to normal levels, 
And because right now, the with the economic damage that this pandemic is causing, it's putting a it's scaring a lot of sellers because they're seeing the value of their companies taking a deep dive, right? For buyers, there's actually also an increased interest because there's also the thinking, the belief that there there's an opportunity here for the buyers to get deals. And there may well be companies, owners, that just want to get out right now. And some are writing it out, but there may also be uh, company owners that are looking to get out. And so there are potential buyers who are actually interested. So I think there's also pent-up demand for, for M&A. So, so a little bit paradoxical. Would you say that it's a good time for sellers or buyers? I would say in, from that perspective, it's a little bit better for buyers, for those companies that are suffering and see their valuation taking a negative hit, that it would be better for the buyers. So it's a buyer's in, market. In a way, it is, yes. All right, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit more about the, the mindset of uh, a language translation company owner. So what does an exit plan for an LLC owner look like, Steve? When should they plan on it? Do they need professional advice or support to get started? And, and what, how long will it take to, to prepare themselves for an exit? When we're talking about exit plan, right, let's, let's just sort of define what that means. An exit plan is a, a plan where you exit your financial position and your ownership position in your company. That's what an exit means. Right. And there are many ways to exit. So selling is actually only one of several ways. So part of what an exit plan is to define well, what approach, what strategy, you're, which option you're going to take for an exit. Other, it may be selling, but there are also other alternatives. And I'll just give a couple of examples of what I mean. One example is mergers. So you could merge with another company. That's also a potential exit plan. And you could also sell an ownership stake to another person, basically bring in another partner. Right. And when you are ready to exit completely, then you can sell your remaining shares or equity stake to that partner and exit the business completely. So that's another exit, potentially another exit strategy. Another example that I'll give would be to structure something where the company could be owned by employees. We've also seen a couple of company owners uh, attempt to do that so that it becomes an entity that is owned by employees. Right. So there are many different ways to structure uh, an exit. Uh, selling is just one of many ways. And for, for even smaller companies, maybe the exit is simply just to liquidate everything at the end. And this is true for basically the kind of the one-person company, the sole proprietors, and um, just essentially close the door. Right. And so that, that is a or sell their client list to another small uh, sole proprietors. That could also be an exit strategy. So by the exit plan, we uh, we come in and help company owners think through what their options are. And as far as uh, whether they need professional advice or support, I would say every person could benefit from outside expert advice. And it's kind of like accounting or legal work, right? Could you do the bookkeeping yourself? Sure. 
Yeah. Um, many of us enter into business contracts. You know, I, I count myself as, as one of those people. And we don't necessarily run every contract through a lawyer. And that may make a lawyer cringe, but there's absolutely a role for getting a certified public accountant or a lawyer involved. Uh, and I think the same applies here, right? And a, the seller may, may not have, with, with, the, with the assistance of an outside M&A advisor, a potential seller will have greater reach. Uh, more marketing power to reach more potential buyers. Uh, the valuation is a tricky process, and that is something that I think an outside M&A professional could assist in the valuation process. So there are many, many benefits that I think an M&A advisor can bring to the table for sellers. So you mentioned something about uh, the client list or the company's value. The problem in our industry, with especially with smaller LSCs, is that uh, a lot of them they just service larger LSCs. They they have very minimum or no direct clients. Uh, so those companies, a lot of them that I've spoken with in the past, they have said that they're willing to sell. In fact, what do you tell them, or do they have any value to sell because they're literally wholesaling translation to a larger company? I think that's where finding the right buyer comes in. If you are a smaller LSC and servicing a larger language company and you're talking to a potential buyer that is looking to grow their end client uh, base, you're talking to the wrong buyer. That potential buyer, of course, is looking for the more direct clients. And your company as one that services other language companies is really not the right fit. So they would not see much value in acquiring you as a small language company trying to serve the big, the bigger players. Um, in fact, they would they would try to discount that that a lot of the revenue you have because they view that revenue as not coming from the right clients and therefore should be discounted. Right. right? Uh, so, but to but that company could be very very attractive to another language companies that's also serving uh, the, the larger language companies. And I think so. I think finding the right buyers is really, really key in this case. Okay. So uh, shifting gears a little bit here, uh, if uh, a language company wants to acquire another LSC, you just mentioned that, what should the owner use as a formula to calculate the value of the purchase? This is the, the million dollar question, right? The and there's no short or easy answer for this, and it's not a cop-out answer. And the most common shorthand way that we hear is that people talk about the multiple of EBITDA, right. which stands for, in accounting terms, stands for earnings before interest, tax, depre- depreciation, and amortization. amortization. Right. And... A lot of the language companies that we have spoken with or have worked with in the past do not have a true EBITDA calculated. And you know they have their uh, net margin, net profit margin, which is not the same as EBITDA. So EBITDA, I think, as expressed in the multiple of EBITDA is the most common, common way. If we're looking for a short formula, that, that may be it. However, it is... Um, there are all kinds of caveats that I think we should 
attached to this calculation. The, the multiple EBITDA method is essentially the looking at comparable companies, right? What comps in, in real estate terms. You're looking for companies that are similar to yours and you look at what multiple of EBITDA that this company was sold for and you use that as a basis for valuing your company. Right. That's one, that's one of several methods. The other method that I'll just very quickly mention, because we could spend literally uh, a couple hours just on valuation alone, is a, a method called discounted cash flow. And essentially, it's a way of calculating the intrinsic value of the business based on projected future cash flow. And it is the most accurate way to arrive at a valuation of the company, is to use this discounted cash flow method. And the third method that I'll quickly mention too is based on precedent transactions. And this is very, very difficult to do in our industry because very few companies in our industry are public. Therefore, there's not a readily available data set to compare and analyze previous transactions. Right. We only hear about these deals, but we have no idea of all the financial transactions and the deep financial details that go into these, these transactions and deals. So basing your valuation on precedent transactions is very, very difficult in our space. So now if we look at the flip side as a seller, obviously you want the highest bidder or payer, but what else do LSCs value when choosing a buyer? I mean, it has to be more than just uh, monetary gains here. Do they feel strong about staff, branding, keeping their legacy alive? I would offer to say that it's actually not about the highest payer, but it's actually about the best deal structure, right? So the, in the M&A valuation, there are a couple components to value. One obviously is a number, uh, you know, whoever paid is willing to pay the highest, yes. but there's also the terms and conditions that are attached to that payment, right? And how much upfront payment and is there a paid out? What are the contingencies? Sometimes buyers like to see payout contingencies based on revenue growth. So the payouts are only possible if the company being acquired is able to hit those revenue projections. So terms and conditions are very much part of the deal, right? So it's not necessarily about the, the, the company, the buyer that offers the, the highest number, but the company that offers the most attractive deals and conditions. And the other things that I will mention, you touched on some of those things is that for sellers, they are also interested in seeing their clients being taken care of, right? They want to see their staff being taken care of. And, most most sellers are for them this is their baby of and course yes they've spent the better part of their adult lives building up this company and now letting the baby has now grown up and they're they're parting ways they're, they're naturally protective and for these sellers i think another component is that they want to see that the the buyer is able to take care of their clients, their staff, and essentially protecting their legacy. That's also, that's also important to the buyer, to the sellers. Uh, and what is the level of, of involvement or engagement of a language uh, translation company owner who sells his business post-transaction? Like, 
do you see there's a trend that they have to be involved for a certain amount of time? I know that normally they have to sign a non-compete agreement that they cannot start another company, but what what's their engagement level? That really depends entirely on the owner and also on the buyer. Some owners do just want to leave and do not want to stay on, and and that may very well be what the buyers want too, right? And others may take a partial role, uh, or the involvement may be on a time-delimited basis, meaning that they stay on for three months, six months, 12 months, up to 18 months or two years. That really depends on what the buyers and sellers are looking for. Some have also become employees holding senior level positions. So they sell their company, but they remain on. They're very much engaged, but now they become a, a director or a vice president uh, of the, the company that they have just sold. So we've seen all different combinations of involvement. And uh, let's let's talk about, uh, since you are in an advisory role, let me get your opinion on this. Uh, what value does an advisor or a company like Treehouse, for example, uh, bring to an LLC that's ready to exit through a sale? Um, do you provide help with uh, due diligence on both sides? Uh, just explain to me what the value is so uh, I understand it and, and our audience can understand as well. For the sellers, the value that we bring as an outside M&A advisor is that we could address the many of the, the challenges or issues that we have talked about. For example, diversification of revenue, diversification of clients. Buyers also want to see a strong management team in place. And for smaller companies that are looking to sell, that is an area that we have seen some companies struggle with, meaning that they don't have a strong management team in place. There's not a middle management tier. And when we come in, we work with potential sellers to try to find solutions to these issues. And even if the time horizon does not necessarily allow us to address these issues in full, we try to find ways to package uh, the company and mark and position the company in such a way that would be attractive, still attractive to a potential buyer. Right. And what that translates into is that it, it helps minimize the perceived risks and it help, helps increase the potential value of the sale. Right. Uh, so a lot of translation company owners uh, have never been in this position before in this situation. What does a transaction actually look like? I know every transaction is unique, but uh, in general terms, uh, what should they expect? They expect that there will be a lot of requests for uh, documentation, for financials. And we, for example, have worked with sellers. And you know, the first question we ask for is, you know, please provide us with your three-year uh, cash flow analysis and statements. And please pro provide, provide us with your three-year P&L. And, and then the sellers take a long time because they don't have these things ready to generate as reports to, to hand over to us. Right, so that's the, the first obvious thing that they can expect uh, is that there will be a lot of requests for financial details. Then the next tier is once we get we dig into it is 
We want to understand the operational details. We want to understand, for example, who their clients are. We want to understand whether these these clients are bound by contracts or or they're sort of one-off. So we want to understand the client mix, right? How many of these companies are in what industry and how many of them are repeat clients and understand client loyalty, essentially. So the... When we work with a potential seller, we try to understand everything that a buyer would be interested in knowing and help them get these things prepared in advance. Um, the last thing we want to see is that a potential seller engaged with a buyer and the buyers will be making the same requests. And then the last thing we want to see is that a seller is struggling or takes too long to get to provide these things because it shows that they're they don't have their house ready for for an exit and that that alone raises concerns right for the buyers and that's why having an outside help is very valuable to to prepare or to get all of these documents in place before you even uh, look at the market to see if you can find a buyer exactly you you want you want to have your house in order and do your homework before you even talk to a buyer that's absolutely correct. Well, let's let's uh, shift gears here and, and talk about uh, a related subject. So let's say a company from outside the U.S. is trying to acquire one in the U.S. or vice versa. Basically, uh, an American company is trying to get uh, to buy a company in Europe or somewhere else. How does cross-border transaction is different compared to buying a local company? There's some obvious things and not so obvious things to consider. For example... The tax laws are, will be different. Labor laws are different. And I think those are two ob- obvious examples of how a cross-border transaction will create new challenges and hurdles because you first have to understand how the, these different tax laws and labor, labor laws either enhance or impede the transaction, right? It could work both, either ways or both ways. The other thing to consider too is that it may not be obvious because you know we, we operate in a relatively free economy, but there are countries that have limitations on foreign ownership. So if you're looking to do a transaction with, uh, with one of those countries, for example, you have to understand what the legal requirements are for foreign ownership, right? In China, in some industries, for example, a foreign company cannot be in the Chinese market without a local partner. Basically, you have to form a joint venture and in, in some of these industries in China, right? Uh, so you have to understand the legal requirements for foreign ownership. There are also different requirements for financial reporting and legal reporting and right. above and beyond just taxes. And you, there are different uh, filing requirements, legal, uh, regulatory requirements for filing and when it gets to international transactions, that could be very, very tricky. Another thing that I think don't think company owners think about enough is once you acquire a company in a different country, the moving of the assets could be a challenge. In some countries, moving the company out of that country is harder than in others, right? So let's say you acquire a very profitable business in country X, right. but then later on you find out it's very, very difficult to get the profits out of that country, right? So moving the capital is something you have to think about. And then lastly, um, 
we're all in the language industry, so intuitively, I think we know this already. It would be the cultural barrier, the language barrier, the corporate cultures differ from country to country, uh, time zones, and I think a lot of the language company owners are probably already attuned to those challenges and things to think about. So uh, for that reason, you need a specialist advisor who understands all these intricacies and details that normally uh, a general M&A advisor may not have that information. Uh, and, and I'm guessing that's where the value comes in. Yes. So with international transactions, and I think this is true across the board, right? Right. In your, your typical M&A team would comprise an M&A lawyer, M&A accountant, and sometimes the M&A lawyer and accountant would be the advisor. Uh, sometimes it isn't. But the, the rule of thumb here is that, yes, for international transactions, not all M&A lawyers are equally equipped to deal with international transactions. And not all M&A accountants or advisors are equally equipped to deal with these cross-border deals. So you need to look for an M&A advisor that actually has the experience with these cross-border transactions. And the insights into the realities of what goes on in, in, in your particular target market. Um, so do you understand all the socioeconomic and, and all kinds of changes that are happening in that country? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's fair to say that no M&A advisor would know how to do a cross-border transaction in every single country, right? Of course. It's just impossible to do. However, a, a good, competent M&A advisor would know who to partner with. So let's say, for example, you want to acquire a company in Mexico or in Italy uh, or China. And a, a, your, your, a good M&A advisor would have a strong partnership relationship with their counterpart in Italy or China or Mexico that they could work as an extension of the M&A team to help advise their transactions. On a totally different subject, uh, share with me your personal view of where this market, the translation and localization market, is headed as you sit where you are right now. I mean, you're looking at it from an angle that we don't. Well, I think in a short term, the, this pandemic is affecting all of us and in very, very fundamental ways. And it's affecting our lifestyles. It's, it's hitting our pocketbooks. And... We, see, we still see the language industry as one that has tremendous upside potential for growth, and both as an industry and also for the language company owners. But we must first ride out this tough period. And a lot of the trends that we've covered in our talk today will be accelerated. The, the working from home uh, has become a norm. We, we see that as something that will stay. We, we, we already see some big tech companies announcing that, that, for example, Facebook and Google have already made such announcements that for the rest of 2020 and actually well into 2021, that employees will work from home. And we see that across uh, different industries, certainly ours. And the outsourcing, the trend, I think, will, will, will accelerate. And the adoption of technology is something that we will also see accelerate as well. It's always been a trend, right? COVID didn't just drive a, a sudden adoption of technology, but it certainly has accelerated it. Absolutely. Steve, uh, as always, I enjoy talking to you and I learn a thing or two. And uh, I'm pretty sure that 
our audience today they they enjoyed it too and um but if people wanted to reach out to you what's the best way to get in touch the one of the best ways is by email i'll provide several ways Our, my email is steve that's just steve without the end at the end at treehousestrategy.com i'm also on linkedin and they could, they're encouraged to send me a note on linkedin as well so either by email or by on the linkedin profile I'm um, also on uh, any number of social media. It's fairly easy to find. If you just uh, type in Treehouse Strategy in Facebook or Twitter, you will be able to find us. So any of the social media channels, we're, we're also active on. And, and Steve also is a prominent speaker and uh, attends most of the industry conferences. But for now, those things are on hold. Again, thanks to COVID. Again, thank you so much for your time and for this insightful information. I really enjoyed speaking with you, and I hope that we can continue this conversation in the future as well. Thank you very much, Sultan. It's been ha- thank you for having me on your on your show today. I really enjoy talking to you and to your audience. And uh, before I go, I'll just mention one last thing for getting in touch. Uh, you mentioned in our introduction that about an organization called a Globalization Organization of Asia Pacific, or, or GoAP. You could also find more information about us at uh, goap-global.com. So there are many resources for industry professionals. So I encourage everyone to take a look and uh, take a part in that. So thank you again, Sultan. And now it is our product review segment. I take this time to briefly review three products or tools that have relevance to language translation companies. I'm excited that today I'm covering informational tools. I'm talking about sources of information with pertinence and relevance to the language translation industry. The first such source of information is a blog by industry veteran Natalie Kelly from HubSpot. Her blog under the title of Born to be Global can be accessed at borntoBeGlobal.com. It is very well laid out and lists all her posts as well as her publications and books there. I visit Natalie's blog often because it contains very valuable information. Tips that we can apply to our practices almost right away. For example, she has a post on how to improve your relationship with your freelancers. She also discusses global growth and marketing tips that normally get left out in our industry conversations. I find her blog very informative, insightful, and the beauty of it is that I don't have to spend hours to read the information. Every piece is a 5-10 to minute read. I give this blog site a 10 out of 10 and highly recommend it for everyone. The next source of information that I have reviewed is also very valuable to me. I'm talking about The Worldly Marketer, a podcast presented by Catherine Bussman from Verbachina. With a special focus on global marketing, she consistently raises questions about cultural and cross-border marketing to experts from different industries and different geographical regions. What I really enjoy about this podcast is that every episode focuses on a specific region or a specific subject. 
Catherine has a very pleasant and professional way of getting her guests to drill into difficult and hard to magnify issues surrounding market entry, doing business in a specific place, localizing content and so on. The consistency and high quality of production along with the content makes this a go-to podcast for people like myself. If you have not subscribed to the Worldly Marketer podcast, then you must. I give this podcast 10 out of 10 for being an important and valuable source of information for the language industry and beyond. The third source of information that I am highlighting today is Slater. The Slater.com website is a treasure trove of information, articles, and research. They provide a feed for language industry analysis that you can subscribe to, and they have a podcast and a YouTube channel. The entity has become a major source of content and news for the language industry. In fact, now they even offer market research and their website has an RFP center. They are becoming a hub for localization information exchange. SlaterCon, their annual conference, brings some of the best and brightest in our industry to share their experiences. I have to admit, I have not been to any of their events yet, but I'm certainly planning on doing so. I'm very pleased with the quality of information and research and give Slater a 10 out of 10. Okay folks, there you have it. We have covered the subject of management consulting and mergers and acquisition today with Steve Chu. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed making it. Please share your comments and feedback and don't forget to subscribe to the Translation Company Talk on your favorite podcast platform. Until next time. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe and stay tuned for our next episode.